Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. What are the strategic priorities for CDRH in 2021? Yeah, it's a little bit of a rehash of the 2018 through 2020 priorities, but you know, it's good to, to revisit and remind folks of what those priorities are. And so Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences joins me on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, where we talk about those 2021 CDRH priorities and get into some of the nuances and, and impact of uh, that COVID and other things have had on some of these priorities. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder, AgriLight Guru, John Spear. And I guess there's a lot going on in the world that's, that's no surprise. And, you know, certainly trying to continue to bring topics and, and information to you who are involved in the medical device industry. And, you know, from time to time, I have a chance to, to chat with Mike Drews of Vascular Sciences, and he's joining me today. So welcome, Mike. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to speak with you and your audience. Absolutely. So every so often, uh, FDA, CDRH, um, I guess, unveils their uh, strategic priorities. And I know they recently um, released their 2021 priorities. And I thought we could dive into that a little bit today. Absolutely, John. Looking forward to our discussion. And folks, we'll provide a link to the the documents and, and some commentary about some of the strategic priorities that and the text that accompanies this podcast. But Mike, what are the important priorities for CDRH in 2021? Great question, John. And again, thanks for the opportunity to have this discussion with you and your audience. As we are literally a couple of weeks away from the end of 2020, as we have this discussion and we begin to, to look forward to, to the new year, 2021, it's always appropriate to take a look at uh, where we've been and where we're going in the future. So that's sort of the, the, the modus operandi for today's discussion. In terms of the strategic priorities announced by CDRH for 2021, I'd like to start with just uh, what Jeff Shuren, the director of CDRH, the top medical device person at FDA, said just a couple of weeks ago, and that 2021 is going to be a quote-unquote reset, and that's his word, a reset of the strategic priorities of CDRH from the from 2018 to 2020. And specifically in January of 2018, FDA put out the 2018-2020 strategic priorities report, which, John, as you mentioned, we can put a link from the website. So it's basically a, a continuation of the, what the priorities have been for the last several years. And not to go through all of them, but I just picked out a couple that I thought were important to mention. Many of these we've talked about in more detail in other discussions. One of them is finding the right balance, the optimal balance, if you will, between pre-market and post-market data. As you and most of our audience know, John, the post-market surveillance requirements, both 
in the EU as well as in the United States have increased tremendously for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is that this is something that I hate to say it, John, and perhaps you might disagree, I don't know, but I think we as an industry have not done a very good job in the past. And as a result, the regulatory authorities are raising that bar. Another of the strategic priorities from the 2018-2020 report is the continued development of the FDA CMS parallel review program. Basically, in a nutshell, what that means is if you're developing a, a new device, a novel device where there is no reimbursement already, you can go through the FDA clearance or approval process and at the same time try to go through the CMS reimbursement process so that when you get through both of them, you not only have a device that you can legally uh, market that is has FDA approval, but at the same time, people can pay for it because they can get reimbursed. On a personal note, John, I just would point out on that FDA CMS parallel review program, it's been, I'll be honest with you, an ongoing disappointment to me for a very, very long time because I was on a committee in D.C. about 15 years ago, maybe a little more now, where we were trying to do exactly the same thing. So it's taking a heck of a long time. But perhaps the most important thing that FDA announced in this strategic priorities uh, document from a couple of years ago is that by December 31st, 2020, which is literally days from now, it was written a few years ago, but literally days from now, CDRH's goal is to have more than 50% of manufacturers of novel technologies, of novel medical devices for the U.S. market, intend them to bring those devices to the U.S. market either first or in parallel with other major markets around the world. And obviously, John, that's purely politics. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but it is a, a political motivation. And how do we define these novel technologies? Well, what it says in this priorities report is that this is for PMAs, HDEs, de novos, and 510Ks with breakthrough designation program or BDP designation. And the BDP is something that we've talked about many times before. John, as you know, I've had tremendous experience and fortunately tre tremendous success in that program. I've got about eight or nine devices in that program now and a few others that are that are pending. So that's one of the goals for the last few years as well, to be able to make sure that at least half of our device manufacturers that are developing novel technologies bring them onto the market first here in the U.S. or at the very least at the same time in parallel with other markets. Let me pause at that point, John. I know I've gone through yeah. a bunch of things there. Anything that you want to dig into a little bit more deeply? Well, I mean, first and foremost, that's a reminder. I had totally forgot about the uh, FDA CMS parallel review program. I'm, I was just talking to somebody the other day about the importance of reimbursement, because I think a lot of times companies forget about that, especially, you know, if they're a startup pursuing their, their first device, you know, a lot of times that focus is maybe disproportionately, but almost exclusively on the regulatory processes. And it's like, well, that's just part of it. I mean, it's a big part of it. Don't mishear me. But addressing reimbursement, especially in the U.S., is a pretty big deal if you want to have a successful product in the marketplace, too. I'm curious, Mike, I know, I, I recall when you and I spoke about that, gosh, that's been a bit, there had been very few uh, who had gone through that that program. Any, I know I'm putting you on the spot a little bit, but any insights as to how popular that program has been? It's gaining in 
popularity, as uh, as we've talked about before, John, more and more companies are realizing that what's the good of bringing a product onto the market if people can't use it because they can't buy it or, or pay for it or get reimbursed for it, right? And this is probably no more evident than specifically in the BDP program. And perhaps this is a topic that we can discuss in more detail in the future podcast, John. But I've been saying for many years, when a company gets a device onto the market under the BDP program, chances are there's not going to be any reimbursement for it because it is breakthrough, right? So it probably doesn't fit into an existing reimbursement code. And therefore, you're going to be very limited to how many people you can help. So a few years ago, CMS announced automatic reimbursement for BDP devices initially for the first two years. And just more recently, it has been expanded now to the first four years. So what that basically means, John, is if you bring a device onto the market with BDP designation, you essentially get, there are a few limitations, but you essentially get automatic reimbursement for four years. What that then allows you is to have more time to collect the additional data to get longer term reimbursement after that. So it's kind of like, in a regulatory sense, John, the emergency use authorization, where technically this is a temporary authorization. It only lasts during the the pandemic emergency. And if you don't have a 510K or de novo or a PMA or something, after that, you'll have to take your product off the market. So it basically gives you some time. Yeah, I mean, sense, it, it, it totally makes sense. Sounds like a, uh, if this is an okay term to use, it sounds like a nice perk to consider for folks where, where that applies. It's definitely a nice perk. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, clearly, I'm normally this time of year, you know, the way CDRH works is they seem to uh, um, draft strategic priorities for a, a two-year period of time, at least that's how it seems to have been the past um, several years. And obviously at this time of year, normally we would have expected a 2020 to 2022, I think if my math is correct, but obviously um, no secret to anyone listening, you know, COVID's had an impact on, on a lot of things in our lives, uh, not the least of which is FDA and CDRH priorities. So, so clearly, I mean, there's, to your point earlier, this is kind of a, a reset, if you will, but what other kind of impact has COVID-19 pandemic had on CDH, CDRH operations and, and priorities? Great question, John. I mean, simply put, and I can't you know, underestimate the importance of this, FDA, like all of us, but FDA in particular has been significantly stressed. And those are ner- not my words, John, not Dr. Shuren or anybody else at, at CDRH. They have been significantly stressed by this whole uh, COVID emergency. I mean, the workload due to COVID products alone, specifically devices like diagnostics, ventilators, personal protective equipment, and so on, has had a tremendous impact on the agency um, in terms of resources, in terms of overall stress levels, and so on. And to the point where it has really spilled over above and beyond just the COVID-specific devices to the non COVID activities as well. We're seeing, um, I'm seeing personally across the board, uh, delays, probably not as significant as some people might think, but delays in, uh, in other kinds of products that have absolutely nothing to do with COVID. But before getting into the non-COVID uh, products, John, I wanted to just share with you to illustrate the, the workload. And you know, as you and some of our audience know, I have a number of personal friends 
who work in the agency and a growing number of former graduate students of mine who work in the agency who share things with me. So here's some interesting statistics for you. The number of pre-emergency use authorizations or EUAs, as I mentioned a moment ago, John, uh, since the start of the pandemic that FDA has received now has been more than 5,000, more than 5,000. And yet about 600 EUAs for COVID-related products. Now, this is specifically for devices. We're not talking about the vaccines and, and so on people are talking about right now, although don't get me started on that one. But about 600 uh, EUAs have been uh, authorized. Okay, so if you do the statistics, more than 5,000 EUAs have been applied and about 600 have been, have been authorized. The delta between those two is about 12%. In other words, only roughly about 12%, and this is FDA statistics, of EUAs have been successful, at least thus far. Wow. And one of the things I predicted, John, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to do a full webinar on the emergency use authorization back in, I think, at March it was for, for Greenlight, long before most people were even talking about this or just starting to talk about it. One of the things that I predicted back then, and, and, and regrettably it's, 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 it's happening as we speak, is that some folks have been using this as an excuse to bring devices onto the market that, quite frankly, shouldn't and to say things about their device to make certain claims that, quite frankly, they shouldn't because they have no basis, no no data to support it. And the statistics that I just shared with you a moment ago, John, 12% of EUAs have been successful, wow. give or take, bear that out. Mm, interesting. I mean, so I, I guess in context, I have a couple of reactions to that last little bit. In context, and I quote normal year and ballpark, we don't need absolutes, but how many device submissions does FDA receive in, in a normal non EUA type situation? I mean, it's a great question. You're, you, 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 these numbers around in my head. <laughs> but well, I can tell you on the 510k and de novo side, I can tell you that roughly there's about three to four thousand. 510Ks received by the agency in any given calendar year. And on the de novo side, although the numbers are increasing, roughly about 100 de novos, um, at least for the last year or so. Yeah. So, I mean, from order of magnitude, I think this is a really important folks or point for folks to to put in context. FDA has seen almost twice or, you know, just shy of two times as many EUA submissions as they do in a normal year for 510K de novo types of things. I mean, PMAs throw those in still, but, and 12%, I mean, obviously, I mean, if, if that was the success rate of, of uh, normal submissions like 510Ks and de novos and PMAs, we as an industry would have huge, huge problems. But uh, I think it's really important for people to think about here that, the 5,000 submissions, somebody still has to go through and review this. This is still a huge constraint on resources. I mean, even though the success rate has been relatively low, you know, 12% of those that have actually uh, re- received the EUA, somebody still has to go through all that and, and make a decision or determination of, of the, the context of the submission, right? So that's just, this, I, I got to imagine, you're, this has been a you're huge You're exactly strain. correct, John. And that's exactly the point that I was trying to make a moment ago when I said that FDA is significantly stressed my words, not Dr. Shore or anybody else. That's part of what I mean. Because now it's important to to not overgeneralize. You know, some of the products coming through the FDA right now under the EUA and the other programs as well are very legitimate and potentially very beneficial products. 
and the submissions along with them are are very very well done but some of them john are just total crap yeah 100 percent crap and i'll be honest with you i have had i should be careful what i say here um when has that ever stopped me in the past john (laughs) (laughs) I, i i i have had companies tell me you know approach me and say will you help us you know get our device you know on the market through the eua or something else and as a professional biomedical engineer never mind as a regulatory consultant john when i look at their technology uh, if, in my opinion, it's total crap, um, yeah. I will often say to them, you know what, I, I, I'm sorry, I would love to help you, but I don't have the bandwidth right now or whatever. That's just a very, you know, politically correct way of me saying that, yeah. that, that, that this is junk. And and, and, there, and as you just pointed out, the more resources that FDA has to devote to, to reviewing these uh, maybe I shouldn't just stop we'll, we'll just the say question, so much. questionable. We'll just say questionable. <laughs> questionable. Thank you, John. I'm yeah. going to hire you as my spin doctor. <laughs> you know, the, the, the more resources that FDA has to apply in reviewing these uh, these these questionable submissions, uh, or even worse, going after companies that put products onto the market, as I said a moment ago, that uh, that that can't you know, substantiate their claims, the more resources they have to devote to that, the less resources they have to devote to legitimate products like the majority of people in our audience are working on. So this is a huge problem. Yeah. Well, and, and it kind of leads to the next question. And, and hopefully some of this is a little bit obvious. I mean, sadly, but what kind of impact have, has all of this had on non-COVID devices? Are there still new devices yeah, that great. are being developed? Great question, John. In short, yes, fortunately, there are still new devices, although um, it kind of depends on what your definition of new is, because as we've talked about many times, you new know, device submission, COVID. new device, <laughs> new device submission. submission. Yeah. Yeah. But simply put, you know, throughout COVID, the, the workload for non-COVID related devices remains fairly constant, perhaps at least based on my individual experience, there might have been a small dip towards the beginning of the COVID uh, pandemic, but, uh, but, but there's still new devices and new submissions coming to the, to the FDA. However, um, and I haven't checked any very, very recent statistics, John. I'm not sure even if we have recent statistics on this yet. I can tell you, and FDA has also announced in general that the pre-market review times for non-COVID-related products have increased. So it is taking longer to get these products through the FDA and onto the market. Uh, and in some cases, FDA has had to postpone meetings with a number of companies in order to prioritize the pandemic pandemic response. I can give you just two instances for my own personal practice, John. I mentioned earlier, I have several devices that are in the BDP program. Uh, one of the perks that you get with the BDP designation is to be able to take advantage of what are called sprint discussions. I have several sprint discussions with several BDPs going on right now, but in one of in, in, in one of the cases, the timeline for that sprint discussion is running about two and a half times longer than what is clearly stated in the guidance. Now, wow. to be fair, this particular sprint discussion is happening within one of the groups at CDRH that's directly being impacted by the COVID products. But nonetheless, that's a pretty significant um, yeah. delay. And on the pre-submission side, John, you you know I'm, I'm a huge fan of the, the pre-sub process. We've talked about it many times. For the first time, this happened just maybe a month or so ago. 
I had a pre-sub that was rejected. I've never had a pre-sub rejected ever in my life. Wow. But I had a pre-sub rejected here, not because of anything that I did, but because of the delay uh, in this particular uh, group at CDRH. They basically said, we just don't have the bandwidth to have a meeting with you now. And their suggestion was they can resubmit in the future, but it's going to be probably a four-month uh, oh uh, delay uh, in having that meeting. Normally, that's, uh, you know, having a pre-sub is about two months between yeah. when you submit the package and when you have the meeting. In this case, it's it's four months. So the pandemic is is taking, uh, you know, it, like like everybody, not just FDA. They're, they're, they're having an impact across the board. Wow. I mean, that's kind of crazy to think about. I, I actually had heard something similar um, from, from somebody uh, about a pre-submission getting rejected the other day, and, and I kind of dismissed it. I'm like, oh, they weren't talking about a pre-sub. I, I, I just assumed that maybe they had misspoke, but maybe they didn't. Uh, that's kind of crazy to think about. I mean, it seems like instead of flat out rejecting the pre-sub, it would have been uh, you know, put it on the calendar a little bit further out. I mean, I, I think we're all fairly reasonable people here. Just send us a notice and say, Hey, we've received it. Uh, this, you know, we will schedule a time. However, there's going to be a delay. It seems like that would have been better than just a flat out rejection. I mean, this is really well, curious. I can to me. tell you, John, yeah, go ahead. I can, I can tell you, John, prior to COVID, the only reason why FDA could reject a pre-sub, the only reason is if FDA felt that the company did not give them enough information about the device to sit down and have an intelligent conversation. And right. fortunately for me, as you know, John, I do tons of pre-subs. That has never happened to me. Well, apparently there's now a new reason why FDA can reject or at least postpone a pre-sub. Huh. And that is because of their limited bandwidth. So in the case that I just mentioned, the uh, the company probably is going to is probably not going to do the pre-sub because uh, in that particular situation we're kind of close to design freeze. They're probably going to go right to the submission, um, but that does increase the regulatory risk of problems happening later. So you know this is all part of the poker game that we all have to play, John. Indeed, indeed, and and so that's that's a you know if I had to wait another four months, I mean four months is it's not an eternity for a med device under development, but it's a pretty significant chunk of time. So that totally makes sense. Um, what about devices that are using some sort of novel technologies? Any any impact or insights on the either the CDRH twenty twenty one priorities or COVID uh, with respect to those types of products? Yeah, great question, John. As I said before, one of the things, and it's actually in bold print in that strategic priorities uh, report that I discussed earlier, is the CDRH goal of having at least half uh, of uh, novel medical devices launching in the U.S. first or in parallel with some other major market like the EU. Well, so the question is, how, you know, what are the statistics thus far? Are we Are we achieving that? Well, in 2018, when that priority report first came out, roughly about half, about 51% of novel technologies claimed to do that. They claimed to come onto the market either in the U.S. first or in parallel somewhere else. Thus far in 2020, that number has actually increased to 69%, almost, almost, it's almost 70%, you know, over two thirds. So we are making progress if you you know, if if you believe that this is a political motivated goal, which I think clearly it is, uh, a couple of years ago, about half of these novel devices came onto the market in the in the U.S. first or 
at the same time as somebody else. And now it's over two thirds. So we are making progress, but it begs the fundamental question. And we've talked about this before, John, what does new or novel mean? Um, the way that the FDA defined it in, in that uh, priorities report is PMAs, HDEs, de novos, and 510Ks with a BDP designation. So that's a pretty good definition, but it's not, um, uh, it's not perfect. And I'll give you a, a quick example, John, and I think we've talked about this before as well. How do we even put 510K and BDP into the same <laughs> sentence? Right. You know, know, some people say that it's an oxymoron. You know, on one hand, it's a 510K, so it's basically the same, i.e., substantially equivalent to something that we already have. And yet, on the other hand, from the BDP perspective, it's a breakthrough. So how can something be the same and yet a breakthrough at the same time? I have no uh, idea, John, but this is the game that we are now playing. Right. 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 For sure. All right. So let's unpack um, maybe a couple other nuggets of of interesting tidbits of, of information. So is there anything else that's new from FDA? Yeah, well, just like we talked about, John, it kind of depends on what your definition of new is. <laughs> well, I mean, there's yeah, some, we, should there's, use it. we should use <laughs> novel with air quotes and new with air quotes for sure. But but yeah, let's... Uh, uh, there are there are a number of ideas that okay. have been talked about in the past that are now being presented again today, as if you know they were new. I'll leave that up to you and your audience to decide. But uh, nonetheless, what are they? And I've just put together a short list of what I thought were some of the more interesting and the more important ones. First of all, CDRH has announced that finally, and this is I think so long off, uh, overdue, they're going to be introducing next month in January. <clears throat> excuse me a system that will allow companies to track the progress of their submission. Kind of like uh, the, the metaphor that FDA is now using is a FedEx style tracker, yeah. right? So you go to FDA's website, you enter this, your, your tracking, tracking number, number and it tells yeah. you where the package is and you know when it's going to be delivered and so on. This is going to be a, a soft launch in January with just a, a handful of developers. So it's kind of like a, a beta test, if you will. But then hopefully if everything goes well, the full launch could be uh, could happen later in the spring. Um, again, on a personal note, I think it's great that FDA is doing this, but with all due respect, we should have had this years, probably yeah. decades ago. Right. Um, so is, is that new? I don't, I don't know, but it's finally gonna, looks like it's gonna, gonna be happening. Uh, some of the other things that FDA has announced might be happening in the new year. And again, everything is sort of you know up in the air with, with COVID, as we've been talking about. Obviously, FDA is going to announce they're going to be finalizing uh, some guidance documents, although interestingly enough, usually at the end of each year, FDA puts out a list of their priority guidance documents uh, for the coming year, the ones that they're going to finalize, the new ones they're going to draft. I have not, and, and we only have about two weeks left in 2020, I have not yeah. seen such a list yet publicly available. Yeah. Um, so FDA has announced that they're going to be finalizing a couple of them. One in particular I thought was interesting is the clinical decision support software guidance. Um, and there's a couple of others, but but not nearly as many guidances as uh, uh, as, as they would in a, in a normal non-COVID year. However, John, I think to be fair, we do have to acknowledge the fact that FDA has now put out probably more than 30 uh, COVID-specific guidances. 
since the beginning of the pandemic back in you know February March ish. So it's not like they haven't been putting out guidances, but the shift has been you know for all of these COVID specific ones. A couple of other things that they've announced in this one, and I thought would be in particular of interest to you, John, is they're planning on expanding the case for quality voluntary pro, uh, uh, program. Um, and this is something that's been in the works for a while. And I know, yeah. John, this is something that you're very interested in. Any thoughts on uh, on on what that expansion might look like? Uh, yeah, well, I don't have a lot of depth and detail. I actually participated in uh, uh, was a, a observer, I guess. There was uh, MDIC is a corporation that's partnered with FDA on the Case for Quality Initiative, and they actually had a, I guess, an update webinar a week or a couple of weeks ago. I know that they're saying that they're expanding this, and I know that they've they've ventured into. Um, I don't remember how they phrase it, so bear with me, but uh, I'll get the gist right. So expanding the program to companies who, because the historically the the pilot program has required companies to have a have demonstrated a good state of compliance um, before they can participate. Uh, and I think it was uh, maybe late in 2019, maybe it was earlier this year or 2020, that they had kind of opened up or had a new um, branch, if you will, of that program for companies that maybe didn't have a good state of compliance and were trying to get to a point of where they were in a good state. I, I think that's one of the primary areas with their, where they're looking to expand is you know companies that maybe have had some struggles with FDA inspections in the past and 43s and trying to work through 43s and warning letters that you know they can now potentially become eligible as part of this program too. So kind of interesting. And and also during that that case for quality update, one of the other things that um, you know and I've been hearing about this for for years now. Frankly, uh, speaking of guidances, that they there's a lot of interest in. Um, We'll just say re- re- updating the uh, Part 11 guidance, uh, if you will, um, because you know that is extremely antiquated with respect to where we are in the world today. I think the last guidance on computer system and software validation uh, was back, and don't quote me on the year, but something like 2003, and certainly a lot is different in 2020, 2021 on software than than it was back in 2003. So there's still a promise, uh, or we'll put this in the hope that there will be some um, updated guidance on computer system and software validation. I, I think this dovetails uh, pretty well with the case for quality initiatives as well. Uh, I know uh, Cisco Vicente, the uh, program manager for case for quality, you know, he and I have chatted about this uh, a couple times in the past, and I know he's very anxious and excited about that because I think that's one of the areas where a lot of companies are, are um, struggling is, you know, what, what am I supposed to do? What are the, recommended best practices and that sort of thing. And the good news is I think FDA is is trying to be progressive and and you know provide at least verbally and through uh, webinars and you know through a couple of articles give people that that opportunity to you know to explain to them about best practices on on uh, validation even though that might not be on any sort of formal regulation or guidance. Well, I think what you just said John, in terms of software and updating the the software guidance is not just that one, but some of the other ones. Certainly, we could have a a, a more in depth conversation on that. Yeah. However, John, I would just remind you though that just because a guidance is is, is quote unquote old, doesn't necessarily mean that it's that it's 
bad or even right. out of date. I'll just remind you of, you know, the design controls, what you and I, you know, uh, originally brought us together uh, a number of years ago is the uh, is the FDA design control guidance, which, as you know, John, was was put out in 1997. And in spite of what a lot of people have said, I've said publicly many, many times, and I think you kind of agree with this, uh, John, I don't want to put words in your mouth, that uh, that guidance on design controls from 1997 is still a good guidance. Oh, yeah. It should not be changed. I, you know, I definitely it's, agree. It, 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 Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but a- along those lines, in terms of the case for quality, and I'm sure this is something that you also, um, you know, have a lot of value to add here, John. CDRH has specifically announced as a high priority, quote unquote, not necessarily a new priority, but a high priority is, for them is aligning the U.S. quality system regulations more closely to follow the international quality system, uh, specifically ISO 13485. Uh, and um, what, where do you think of that, John? And specifically, um, you know, where 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 are we on that? Because yeah. it's another thing that we've been talking about for a very very long time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is this goes into the this has been I think this first surfaced maybe a couple of years back. Last I read, and this is some content. I think it was in November of 2020, so not that long ago. Um, basically, I, I think it was even Dr. Sharon reiterating the importance of FDA moving in that direction. And while it wasn't explicitly clear as to what that means, there was some sort of commitment that that we would ex- we should, as an industry, we should expect to see FDA moving closer and closer towards 1345 in 2021. I, I think, I, if I recall, the the article it even said something about. Uh, you know, uh, p- proposing some revisions to the QSRs uh, for med device in in 2021 too, but um, you know, which kind of I guess will be interesting because um, in- unless you've been sleeping under a rock, <laughs> there, there's something else that's pretty significant that's about to happen in in uh, January 2020 that you know certainly will impact. Uh, uh, U.S. Uh, politics and and that sort of thing, but you know, getting more specific to med device industry, you know, there's a there's going to be a new administration, and if this is like any other new administration, oftentimes there's some change in health and human services, and and maybe some change in FDA. So, uh, what is your crystal ball telling you about uh, the impact on our industry with respect to to politics and and an incoming uh, presidential administration? Great question, John. And uh, uh, but before I answer that, let me just close our, the loop on our previous discussion. I would just ask you and our audience, um, and I'll leave this as a rhetorical question, I suppose. But when it comes to implementing the case for quality, when it comes to um, uh, aligning the quality system with ISO thirteen four eighty five and so on, it comes to updating guidances or another guidance that's on the list that is supposed to be drafted, which should have happened long ago, is the guidance on artificial intelligence and machine learning. Why the heck is this all taking so long? I don't know. I mean, barely COVID isn't having an impact lately, but COVID has been going on now for less than a year. I don't think it's, I think it's become a convenient excuse now for a lot of folks. And I see this to be fair, not just at FDA, but in companies. Oh, things are taking long because of COVID. Okay, that's certainly part of the equation, but some of these things have gone on long before COVID. So, 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 so finally we get to the topic of 
of, of politics. And I find it interesting how so many people, they seem to want to separate regulation from politics, which to me makes absolutely no sense. Why? Because where does the regulation come from? It comes from the politicians. So these things are intimately related to one another. It's not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing, but it is the way that the system works. And it's something that we have to try to to, to, to understand. Yeah. So specifically, to, to answer your question, FDA has already announced just, just uh, in the last two weeks that all of these priorities, all of uh, including, for example, the uh, high priority of CDRH aligning the U.S. quality system with international standards, all of that uh, is contingent on the blessings of the incoming administration, assuming that it's President Biden going to be coming into office uh, moving forward. And so FDA is being very, very cautious here not to get too ahead of themselves, because as you mentioned, there's going to be a new secretary of HHS, Health and Human Services. Most likely there's going to be a new FDA commissioner. And as a result, you know, the FDA is, is, is part of the U.S. government, obviously, and they're, they're, they're subject to the political winds at the time. One of the things that I think is going to be interesting to see, speaking of politics, John, how things play out, it was a clear goal of the, the current President Trump administration going into office to reduce regulation, uh, regulation across the board, regulation you know, for FDA as well. And they've done that. They've reduced a lot of regulation, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'll leave that up to you and your audience to decide. But they've clearly reduced regulation. The question is, what is going to be the new administration's um, view on regulation? Um, and, you know, are they going to be adding back some of the regulation that was taken away? I think it makes sense to take a look specifically at what regulation has been eliminated and should it have been eliminated. But I'll be very honest with you, John, and I think we've talked about this a, a little bit in the past. Every single week as a as a regulatory consultant and as a professional biomedical engineer, I read regulation that makes absolutely no sense to me. Yeah. Absolutely not. And yet people follow it anyway. And most of the time they agree that it doesn't make sense. And yet they follow it anyway. Is that a problem with the system or is it a problem with us? I find it very unfortunate. And again, this has nothing to do with COVID per se. This has nothing to do with President Trump per se, because these issues go back for, for years, in some cases, decades. I find it interesting that so many people seem to focus on the amount or the quantity of regulation that we have. Some people think we have too much regulation. Some people think that we have too little regulation. I think the, that is the totally wrong question to be asking. I think the question we should be asking is, of the regulation that we do have, does it make sense? What does it actually accomplish in the real world? Um, so it will be very interesting to see how the incoming Biden administration either continues to, 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 to follow that course or maybe, you know, make changes. But, uh, but that, I think, is something that we as an industry should, should keep an eye on. What do you think, John? Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's, um, it's one of these times where, you know, there is, uh, you know, a, a lot of unknowns. We, we, we don't know what's going to happen. Um, but, you know, as medical device professionals, I mean, we, we've got to stay the course. I mean, you know, it's, it's uh, of course, politics weighs in and in some way, shape or another, uh, creates new rules, if you will, or, or new challenges, so to speak. But, you know, we are, uh, I'm, I'm proud to be in this industry because I think we're a very resilient industry. And once we figure out how to play this poker game, to, to use your phrase, then... Uh, 
successfully, then I, then I think it, you know, it will have a positive impact on the quality of life. And, you know, folks, I know there's, there's going to be a lot of changes. We don't even know. So there's no point in getting upset or necessarily fretting about it. At the end of the day, I think good science, good engineering, um, what makes sense from a, from a quality perspective and focusing on, on patients with our products and technologies. I mean, as long as we have those as our, our guiding stars, so to speak, I think, I think we're going to be all right. Um, <laughs> what do you think? Mike? I agree, John. I would just, I would just add though, in terms of the change. Yeah, there's, there's, there's going to be uh, change. No question about it with the new incoming administration. Uh, but on the other hand, let's not forget the uh, French philosopher who said the more things change, the more they remain yeah. the same. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right. So wrapping things up today, anything else that yeah, you think is important that we haven't covered about CDRH 2021 priorities or uh, any key takeaways that you want to um, remind folks about today's discussion? Well, I think the key takeaways, John, and you hit one of the most important ones on the on the head just a moment ago. Life continues on during COVID after COVID, medical devices are still being developed. Medical device companies are still being started. I work with a number of you know startup and small companies. They're still getting funding. Yeah, things are different. Things are sometimes challenging, but we are continuing to make progress. Regrettably, I also have to acknowledge, John, that I still see some companies and the people in them continuing to do stupid things, whether it's you know for COVID-related products or having absolutely nothing to do with COVID. So, so our goal, I think, should not be simply to continue to make progress, even through this whole um, uh, COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, but to continue to communicate with the FDA, even though it is a little more difficult, even though things are taking a bit longer, uh, but most importantly, to try to stop making stupid mistakes. Yeah. I hate to I hate to sound un- unkind, John, but you know, long before COVID, I saw I've seen companies and the people, and then again, I'm talking in generalizations here. I don't mean to imply that, you know, the majority of medical device companies out there are doing stupid things or that the people in them are stupid people. That's not my message here. But on the other hand, I do see companies do stupid things and there's no better word for it than stupid. And just like we talked about before with the EUA, the more resources, whether it comes to reviews of submissions, manufacturing inspections, and so on, the more resources that FDA has to apply to deal with these companies who are, to use your word from earlier, John, you know, doing questionable things, mm-hmm. the less resources we're going to have for the non-questionable, the very valid, the very valuable kind of products that, as you just said, you know, we're very, very proud to be part of this industry and, and helping, uh, you know, improve people's lives. But at the same time, we also, we have to also acknowledge the things that we're not doing so well so that we can have a discussion kind of like you and I have been doing now for several years on how to, um, right. how to fix them, how to, how to try to prevent them from happening. So those are some of the, the high level takeaways from our discussion, from my perspective, John, anything that you would add to the list? Well, I mean, I, I think it's always interesting to, to be aware of uh, what's happening on the regulatory fronts from regulatory uh, bodies and agencies such as FDA, CDRH is, as well, you know, any other markets that you're pursuing with your products and technologies. I mean, it, 
I think it's important to understand, you know, what these things have or how they could potentially impact your journey to, to bring these products to market. Um, should ignore them. You should, you know, keep your finger on the pulse as best you can. And good news is we, Mike Drews and I, we, we've got you covered for the most part. So if you, if you haven't been listening to the Global <laughs> Medical Device Podcast, uh, you got some some past episodes to catch up on. But you know that's sort of what what we're trying to do here is bring things to the surface, make you aware of what's going on, and and uh, you know keep your focus. I, you know just to build on on the point that you just shared, Mike. I mean, I, I hope I hope folks who are uh, in this industry are doing it for the right reasons. Uh, I, I hope that, you know, they're not just trying to figure out how to, you know, be, uh, well, uh, nefarious with their, their activities to, to capitalize on, on, on some sort of opportunity. Um, you know, I hope that at the end of the day, folks are, are truly are focused on improving the quality of life. So, you know, if you're doing the right thing. And I think that's definitely the case for the majority yeah, of the industry, Judd, for no sure. question about it. And I would for just sure. end my part of our discussion today with just, you know, one other final thought in defense of the FDA, because my intention here is certainly not to, to beat up on FDA. We already have way too many people doing that. But just to remind you of something that I've probably said in some of our previous discussions, but not for quite a while and certainly not not for today. And that is one of my friends who used to be a senior reviewer at CDRH was fond of saying, physicians can kill patients one at a time, but an FDA reviewer can kill patients thousands at a time. And that's something, you know, not specifically during COVID, but including during, during COVID. I think that's something that all of us in this industry need to remember. Um, physicians yeah. can kill patients one at a time, but an FDA reviewer can kill patients thousands at a time. Something to think about, John. Yeah, for sure. Well, folks, uh, you know, there will be changes uh, next week, next month, next year on the regulatory front. As Mike uh, often states, this is a poker game. And um, my advice to you is find somebody who's an expert at playing this regulatory poker game, and there's none better than Mike Drews of Vascular Sciences. So be sure to connect with him, reach out to him if you have questions or comments. Uh, he's um, more than willing to, to engage and chat with you and figure out you know, if there's some opportunity where he can help assist you in, in your endeavors to bring, quote, new or, or me too or novel, uh, whatever the case may be, get, get your products to market. Uh, Mike is a resource that you should engage. I also want to... Um, let you all know or remind you all, hopefully you all know this by now, but you know, there's still some folks that may not realize Greenlight Guru, we're also here to help too. We have the only medical device quality management system software platform in the industry today. It's designed specifically and exclusively for medical device companies and medical device professionals built on the foundation of FDA's QSR Part 820 as well as 1345 and EUMDR and and all the other major regulations that are impacting your quest to bring in and sell exciting products into the marketplace. So if you'd like to learn more about how Greenlight Guru might be able to help you with your quality management system endeavors, then I would encourage you to go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more. And if you're so inclined, schedule a demo. We'd be thrilled to have a conversation with you to understand your needs and see if we might be able to help. As always, Mike, thank you so much for participating in, in this conversation. Thank you, John. And thank you all for listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast, the number one podcast in the medical 
device industry. This is your host and founder, Greenlight Guru, John Spear. Thank you.